Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Good afternoon. My name is Katherine Bush, and I'm here with Dr. Paul Yoder, who is a professor of special education at Vanderbilt University, as well as an investigator for the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center. Hi, Paul. Hi, Katherine. Glad to be here. Over the span of your career, you've studied communication and language development and intervention in children with language delays. You've also studied speech intervention for children with Down syndrome, and most recently you've investigated an intervention for parents who have a child at risk for autism. Today we will talk about some of the things you've learned over your many years of research in regards to helping children learn to talk. Before we jump in, I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about yourself. Uh, You're actually retiring in December of this year. How long have you been at Vanderbilt? Uh, I've been here for 33 years. I entered the um, special ed department as a faculty in 1986. Wow. And what motivated you to study communication and language development and intervention in young children? So when I was in college, I was a teaching assistant in a class for kids with language delay. And that's where I met Raymond. Raymond was this beautiful, blue-eyed child who didn't speak but he could spell words with alphabet blocks. And um, there were moments, but they were pretty infrequent, where he would show an interest in me or some activity that we were doing. And I really longed to connect with him, but I just didn't seem to know how, and neither did his parents or his teachers. And I think in general, um, the way that we connect with each other is mainly through communication. And language is our most efficient way to communicate. So. If you want to have an impact on a child's well-being, his, his life, I think impacting their communication or language is a really good way to do that. I agree. Thanks for sharing that story. Um, it's very meaningful. Thank you. Let's shift gears now and talk about what you've learned over the course of your career about young children and communication. One of the questions parents most frequently ask when their child is not talking is whether they will eventually learn to talk. This is a particularly common concern for parents of children with autism. Paul, what have you learned about what helps a child be ready to talk? Yeah, I think it's really insightful that you mentioned that this is particularly salient for parents of children with autism because about a third of these children with autism never learn to use language as their primary means of communication. And so it's really common for them to ask, is my child going to talk if they're not yet speaking? And it turns out that there are three, um, we'll call them ready-to-learn-to-talk skills um, that we learned when we followed a pretty large group of children with autism who weren't yet speaking when they began the study. And we followed them for 16 months to find out What's different about the children who did eventually learn to speak versus those that didn't? And can you tell me more about those three things that you identified that predicted later spoken language? Sure. So the first of these ready-to-learn-to-talk skills um, is noticing what the adult is doing or pointing at. Um, 
because these create learning opportunities for a child. So if they um, if they're not looking at the dog, but the uh, adult is doing something with the dog and talking about the dog, that's a learning opportunity to learn about the dog. Yeah. And then a, a second of these um, skills that we'll call ready to learn to talk skills is using gestures or non-word vocalizations in combination with eye contact to communicate. And so when we see that being done frequently, um, children are ready to learn to talk. And can you give me an example of what that might look like, a gesture and a vocalization and eye contact? Sure. So if if a child is reaching for a cup on a high shelf mm -hmm. and looking at the adult, um, the adult is very likely to get the uh, cup for the child. And because the um, adult has been included in the child's communication by looking at the adult, um, the adult is also likely to say, you want the cup. And so in this way, the child learns that including the adult in their communication will increase the probability of success. And also, he might learn something about um, how to talk about what he's communicating. The third one is um, something we know um, a little less about, but we found that children who used many different consonants mm. when they communicated um, were more likely to talk later on. So an example of this is uh, a child might be playing with a car and says, Gah. And what we find is that um, parents will report this, and there's also some other research on this, that when, when children use consonants when they vocally communicate, parents often think they're trying to talk. Definitely. And if you do that a lot, you can imagine that that might change the parents' and maybe siblings' perception of the child as trying to talk already, and so they interact with them more and in different ways. Um, than, he, than, than a child who isn't vocally communicating or not doing so very much. And when they do, it doesn't sound like they're trying to talk. They're just, uh, or they're just using vowels, for example. Mm -hmm. So when kids um, use these three ready-to-learn-to-talk skills frequently and consistently, they add to the probability they're going to learn to talk. So a kid who uses just one of these is less likely to learn to talk. If they use all three frequently and consistently, they're more likely to learn to talk. That's a really interesting finding. Um, is this something that parents and interventionists can teach children? So yes, uh, that's, that's really good news. So um, we can definitely teach children to notice what parents are looking at and doing and pointing at. What we don't know as much about is how do we get children to use diverse consonants when they're vocally communicating. And this is particularly difficult for children with autism. So will this be studied in the future, this teaching children how to um, use a variety of consonants? Um, I know from personal experience that can be really challenging to teach. It, it can. And so to answer your question, will it be um, examined in the future? I really think so. Um, so two of the graduate students who have passed through our lab are now in faculty positions or postdoc positions, and they're trying to get funding to answer this very question. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about this. Um, there are some studies that we have that show that 
we can get children to use at least a consonant more consistently when they vocally communicate. Um, and this is in a group of children who also have trouble learning to talk children with Down syndrome. And so the slightly different question is, can we get them to use a number of different consonants when they vocally communicate? And I'm fairly optimistic about that. We just don't have a, a confident, let's say, set of procedures to do this yet. I look forward to learning about that research when it's published. Me too. <laughs> so even before children begin to talk, adults can talk and play in ways that support their child's development. Tell us more about what you've learned about the parent's role in teaching children to learn how to talk. Yeah. And so even, even when the children don't use these three ready-to-learn-to-talk skills, when parents talk about what children are looking at and playing with, the children are more likely to learn to talk later. And we call this way of talking follow-in utterances because the topic of what the adult is speaking about is following in on the child's attention. And then in terms of how adults might help children learn to play, which in, you'll end up seeing why that's important later, um, if, if adults show children how to use objects that they're already interested in, they've are, they're already playing with that, or they tell the child to, to use the object in a certain way that the child is already playing with, that the child is more likely to play um, well or better in the future. We call um, those follow-in models or follow-in directives. So in both cases, you're, you're, you're adding information to what the child is already doing in the moment. Mm -hmm. In terms, by adding information, I mean you're, you're giving words to what the child is interested in or you're giving them visual information in, the model, in terms of models, uh, how they can play with this differently. You want an example of that? Yeah, I was going to ask. I was like, it's like a, when a child's playing with a car, the parent might also have a car, yeah. and they might label the car, and then they might show them something to do with the car. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Exactly right. So, um, um, you know, um, the car is rolling if the mm -hmm. child is, is playing with the car. If the, and this is something that little children do. They often crash cars together. Mm -hmm. So if the adult gets a car, and it may not be the one that the child's holding, but a car and rolls it down a ramp through a box tunnel. That would be a follow-in model. I see. I think of this as following the child's lead, joining in. Um, it can be hard sometimes for an adult to do those things, can it? That is so true, Catherine. I mean, I think a lot of adults just kind of sit back and watch a child, and they might comment on what a child's doing every now and then. But it turns out that when we're not actively engaged in playing with a child, a lot of children just don't listen to us. They might not even be aware of, of our presence there, particularly if a child has autism. But when we join in actively in having fun and what the child is already having fun doing, they naturally seem to listen to us better and to notice us more. And so, of course, they're going to learn more from us then. I agree, and it can be more fun for everyone. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. <laughs> um, in your research, uh, you've examined the connection between being ready to talk and helping children learn to talk. How are these related to one another? Yeah, I think I know what you're getting at. So um, children and adults influence each other. 
And if I were going to say, is it equal? I would say, yeah, pretty much. Um, so we, we have a sense that, um, you know, that these follow-in utterances help children learn to talk, but they learn from these following utterances better if they're used when we're involved in these turn-taking interactions with the child. Mm-hmm. Would that be something like peekaboo or I'm going to get you something along those lines? Yeah, so peekaboo, I'm going to get you, or what we might do with really young children. Mm-hmm. And they're examples of what I'm talking about in that both the adult and the child have something to do in that turn-taking interaction. As children get older, um, it, it, you know, it's more interesting uh, to the child, for example, if we stack blocks with them once they're able to do that, or even older if we have a tea party with them. So you can see that the child has a part, an active part, in that kind of game, and so does the adult, and it can go on for a little bit. That turn-taking interaction can go on for a little bit. So yeah, that, that's what I meant by sustained turn-taking interactions. And again, is this something we can teach others to do? Can parents do this? So um, parents can certainly do it. It is way harder to do these sustained turn-taking interactions with a child who isn't communicating. Um, You don't know what they're really interested in if they're not communicating that to you, for example. And it's harder to do it if they're not interested in many objects. They're only interested in let's say, a a ball or um, that kind of goop that uh, is kind of (laughs) sticky uh, that some children like so much. Um, Fortunately, we can teach children to communicate more frequently and to interact with objects um, in more varied ways and a a number of different objects. And that makes it easier for us to get into these sustained turn-taking interactions. Also, um, it it turns out that when parents use these follow-in utterances, Mm -hmm. it helps children stay engaged in play, which is a a really interesting thing. So if play helps be, helps it, it makes it easier to be involved in these sustained turn-taking interactions, and follow-in utterances are more listened to in these sustained interactions, and they help children stay in these sustained turn-taking interactions. You can see how this is a kind of adult and child influencing each other kind of thing. It's very motivating. And when we put this all together, we call this pre-linguistic milieu teaching. So it's like a package of techniques that we've learned over the years that we can now use as a new intervention. I learned pre-linguistic milieu teaching from working with you, and I know it was useful in a study you conducted for children with intellectual disabilities. Um, This study also enrolled children with Down syndrome. What did you learn from this study? So I'm glad that you kind of pulled out that group of kids with Down syndrome because they have particular, um, it's, it's particularly challenging for them to learn to talk. So if you look at children of the same intellectual quotient that we call that an IQ, cognitive level, and the same chronological age. Um, Children with Down syndrome have an even harder time learning to talk than those other children with intellectual disability. So what we found was that pre-linguistic menu teaching does help children with Down syndrome learn to talk, but we have to use it more than the one hour a week. 
that Tennessee pays for in terms of professional contact time for children with disabilities under three. And we, we did this study where we compared five hours versus one hour of pre-linguistic media teaching. And we, we did this kind of intervention for nine months. And that enabled us to find out not only relative to one hour, that five hours helped kids with Down syndrome learn to talk, but it helped us to discover why it helped them learn to talk. So relative to one hour, when we used five hours, we could see that after only three months, children started to use consonants more consistently when they vocally communicated. And after six months of prelinguistic intervention, they had larger vocabularies if they had five hours versus one hour of treatment. And we found that both of those skills, consistently using consonants to communicate and a larger receptive vocabulary, was the reason why five hours helped kids learn to talk more than one hour did of prelinguistic native teaching. Incredible. I remember feeling so excited by those results. Um, and in case people would like to learn more, there's a nice summary of this study on the VKC website called, A Key Question is More Better. Um, these results were especially helpful in framing the importance of additional services for children in early intervention. And I know that was one of your hopes. Yeah, for sure. Definitely is. I still hope that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so now we're going to shift gears to when children begin to talk. Once children begin using single words, what have you learned about how to improve what the child is saying so they talk in longer sentences or speak more clearly? Yeah, so we've known for a long time um, that one way to help children talk better is to um, follow their attempts to talk with more grammatical and more clear pronunciation. We call these kinds of utterances that follow the child's talking recasts because we recast the child's meaning in an adult-like utterance. And can you give me an example of a recast? Yeah. So um, the child is reaching for a cup of juice and they say, do. The adult says, you want the juice. So um, you can see that we've added grammatical information, more words, and we've added adult pronunciation to what the child did. And we think that I'm doing so right after the child tried to communicate that message makes the new information in the recast salient to the child because they can make the comparison between how they communicated it and how the adult did. And then that salience of that new information might make it easier to learn. And over months of accurate recasts, mm -hmm. the child learns to put words together and to speak more clearly. That internal comparison piece has always been so fascinating to me that that's how we learn yeah. to talk more clearly or to add more words to our sentences. Yeah, that's a really interesting theory. And we actually have some pretty good data to say it's probably the case. That's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also similar to what we talked about earlier between parents and children. So specifically, that parent is following the child's lead in that moment. Yeah, yeah it's a good analogy. So, you know, before we talked about following utterances, following in on the child's attention mm -hmm. or play or communication that's used, that's conveyed through gestures. But now the opportunity for a recast is the child's utterance or, or spoken words. So it's, it's very similar, it's just at an older period. 
yeah and you can see why um, why this might be hard to do if you're a speech language pathologist and your child doesn't talk very much in therapy or they don't talk very clearly in therapy and so what we did early in our lab was to find out well what can therapists or, or parents do to help the child speak more often and more clearly in the therapy session itself so that we can use recasts more accurately in other words match their meaning and more frequently because we need to be doing this about four times a minute and when we do when we accurately and frequently recast about four times a minute about twice a week for about six months we can get children even children with down syndrome to speak more clearly and we can get children with um, speech speech and language difficulties to use longer utterances and more clear utterances. This may be too technical, Paul, but is there um, a difference between recasting a single word versus a short utterance, good timing or reason to do one or the other? Yeah. Um, so if a child is, um, is, is, communicating something in a short utterance, mm -hmm. maybe a single word utterance, then we want to speak and um, we want to use a grammatical recast, okay. one that's a grammatical phrase. Um, the, the complexity of the message will get bigger or more complex mm -hmm. when the children start to use these longer utterances and thus the complexity of our um, recast needs to also grow right. to add new information when a child is um, is having a, um, trouble communicating or speaking clearly mm -hmm. let me put it that way when they're having trouble speaking clearly then it's helpful to um, say the word that the child is not saying clearly as a single word utterance mm -hmm. and then follow that with a multi-word utterance, okay? So an example might be the one I said before, do. Mm -hmm. I might say juice, you want the juice. I see. Yeah. So they get the benefit of both. Yeah. This is how I say it more clearly, and these are some words I can add to it when I'm ready. Yeah, that's right. And the timing part is that we need to say these recasts right after the child has said their utterance attempt mm -hmm. because it makes it easier for them to compare the new information the recast is with what they've tried to say. Wow. We've talked a lot about things you've discovered over the years. Um, and now we want to talk about your relationship with the Kennedy Center. Uh, you have a long history of supporting the mission of the Kennedy Center. How did this relationship impact your work? So I've always considered the Kennedy Center my intellectual home. Um, I'm gonna, I get a little emotional about this um, because I've learned so much from being a part of the Kennedy Center. Um, I've learned how to measure brain's activity and how to, how to test children's ability when you're testing children that can't understand test instructions. And complex statistical methods that help us understand the way that adults and children influence each other. I just couldn't do my work without the support 
Um, so it's been my pleasure to be the director or acting director of three of the services that the Kennedy Center has. And um, those are, they were fun, and um, I hope they were helpful to the Kennedy Center. You have an incredible lineage here. Thank you. I'm not sure we're going to be able to let you go, honestly, <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> right. So I, I'm curious, since you have done some of this work with me. For sure. I'm curious what of the findings that we've had or, or activities that you've done in my lab that you've enjoyed the most, that's been most enlivening for you. So I've worked with Paul over the last eight years, and in 2011, I was an interventionist and supervisor on a research study called the Clear Talk Project. And we've talked a little bit about it, but didn't name it in our conversation today. This particular project evaluated the effectiveness of two different speech therapy interventions for children with Down syndrome. I found this project to be the most exciting because there were no prior studies that explicitly explored speech therapy in individuals with Down syndrome, which I just didn't understand that because speech intelligibility or comprehensibility is such an important need of many children with Down syndrome. You know, being able to talk so that people understand you is vitally important for quality of life, employment opportunities, and safety, just to name a few. And I'm very glad you took the time to investigate this question and that I could support your efforts. Thank you, Catherine. It's delightful to have you as a part of the team. Yeah, and this um, project was also a springboard for a Kindred Stories project through the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, and that was also exciting to work on. And I think we also have a, um, a short summary of the findings of that project um, in the same location um, that you talked about a parent report being in before. I believe you're right. Yeah. Yeah, so if people want to learn more about this research, there are resources available. Yep. We've covered a lot of information today. I'm curious to learn if there's anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to talk about. Well, I'll tell you about our, our the project we just finished, and I'll do so briefly. Okay. Um, so this is um, a project with um, babies um, who are siblings of children that have autism. These babies are at risk for communication disorders themselves. If they don't get uh, therapy, about a third of these babies will qualify for speech-language pathology services when they're three years old. But when the babies are, say, 12 months to 18 months, they're too young to be diagnosed for a communication disorder. And yet that really creates a problem for the parent. If they wait and see if the child has a diagnosis until three, they might miss a window in which the brain might be most likely to change due to our treatments. So this idea of earlier being better is what I'm referring to there. Or if they give a therapy that the child doesn't need, particularly if it's an expensive therapy, um, like we might do with children with autism, then we might they might end up using money or time or stress that they didn't really need to do. Yeah. And so what we did, and you, you helped with this, um, was we had staff teach parents to use a, a therapy method by meeting with them twice a week for three months. And we um, 
we found that um, parents use the therapy techniques that we taught them to use, and it reduced their the child's communication challenges nine months after they entered the study because the children learned motor imitation skills. Yeah, I was the inter one of the interventionists for the study, and I found this result surprising. Uh, it took me a moment to connect that motor imitation, like clapping your hands or maybe imitating an action with a toy, putting it in, could help communication. And you helped me connect those dots. And it makes sense, especially if we think about communication as a skill that children imitate. Yeah. Um, so motor imitation is what we call a pivotal skill. Mm -hmm. Pivotal skills are they're, they're behaviors that children do a lot that enable them to learn something in the future. And you can think of um, motor imitation as a pivotal skill for communication and language, in part because to motor, to imitate an action that an adult does, the child has to notice that action and they have to modify what they do to match that action. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that children who are at risk for communication disorders, perhaps because they're at risk for autism, might not readily do unless we help them. And so um, if, if, if they notice how the adult is communicating or they notice how the adult is talking, then they're more likely to learn to talk and to use communication in ways that might be particularly difficult for them if they didn't get this intervention. And it's exciting because it is offered at a time when children might not receive services in their homes. Yeah. And we're teaching parents so that it can be provided to the child with greater frequency. That's right. It can be provided whenever the parent has time. Um, it's less expensive than you might, um, uh, might do if you're going to be doing a very intensive treatment. Um, I think it's a whole new way to manage the risk for communication disorders for this group at a really young age. It's exciting. Paul, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with me about your contributions to research here at Vanderbilt and through the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center. Your efforts towards improving the lives of people with disabilities are greatly appreciated. We will miss you. It's been my privilege. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.